0: Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss business or corporate or business-owned life insurance, commonly termed dead peasants insurance. With me to discuss the topic is University of Connecticut law professor, Peter Kotchenberger. Welcome, Peter. Thank you for your time.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today, David.
0: As always, uh, let me begin with some background. Corporate-owned life insurance policies, sometimes termed key man, more frequently termed, again, dead peasants' insurance, have existed for many decades. They became more known to policymakers in 2004 when the General Accounting Office, now the Government um, Accountability Office, published a report on the topic, and widely known in 2009 when the subject was addressed in Michael Moore's documentary, Capitalism, A Love Story. As noted in the website introduction, these policies were purchased on millions of employees over the years, and because of their tax or tax shelter advantages, monies grew tax-free and the benefit payouts went untaxed, these plans constituted a corporate financing and profit-making tool. With me to discuss the evolution of this corporate financing method is, again, University of Connecticut law professor Peter Kotchenberger. Peter's bio, as always, the case posted on the website, and as always, the interviewee's comments, Peter's comments, are his own. So with that, Peter, let me begin by asking you the fairly straightforward question. These policies are based on, quote-unquote, an insurable interest. Uh, At least initially, that was the reason,
1: uh, but what does
0: insurable interest actually mean?
1: Right, and that's a good place to start. Um, And insurable interest is, it's an old concept, and it's in insurance and insurance regulation. And really what it's about, it's trying to distinguish reg- legitimate insurance from gambling. Uh, and life insurance is the, you know, the best example. We can go back a couple hundred years in which, uh, people, before this was regulated, particularly in the United Kingdom, people were taking out, uh, life insurance policies on strangers, politicians, the royal family, and so forth, uh, basically, you know, betting against each other as to when they would die. Uh, this created, you know, not, not surprisingly, some concern about the, you know, the royal family and others, because if you have, uh, if someone has a life insurance policy on you, then they have at least an economic incentive to, uh, that you die earlier rather than, uh, you know, so they can A, collect the benefits and B, not have to continue to pay the premiums. So the concept of insurable interest, uh, is designed to, you know, to provide a balance to the economic incentives that someone who is going to be a beneficiary of a life insurance policy would have to see an early death. Or, you know, and we see this even up to today. Every now and then you read in the paper uh, someone's murdered or a spouse is murdered for their life insurance policy proceeds. Um, now, a spouse has an insurable interest on their other spouse almost always, but again, the idea is is to um, only allow insurance when the the person who would benefit, the beneficiary or the company, would have an interest in that person actually staying alive and a financial loss if that person should die. Great.
0: Great. Thank you. So my next question then procedurally is, what do we know about how income from these policies... Is used. The rhetoric is the income is used to pay for employee and retiree benefits, but as the '04 GAO report noted, corporations are not obligated
1: to use the income for any particular purpose. So, do we know how the money is used? Well, okay. So that's a, you know two things on that. I guess one, you and I, at least I know we we probably don't know um, now. And then the second thing is is that. There were substantial changes, uh, in the law, in the federal law in this in 2006, um, which requires not only, which really cuts down on some of the dead peasant aspects of this insurance, which you mentioned, but also has reporting requirements in that insurance, uh, not insurance companies, employers who purchase COLEY, uh, corporate owned life insurance, have to report a, a variety of data to the IRS. So we may not, probably don't have access to that, but there is an accounting. Or you know, uh, that is provided to the government. And one thing I should note too: you sort of have a, a strange mixture. You have much of this is driven, as you noted, by tax law, and that's all federal law. Um, the states really don't have much to do with it. But this is also an insurance policy. United States insurance is regulated by the states, and the concept of insurable interest, which still has to be met, is really a state law issue. Now, the federal government could make it a federal issue, but it hasn't. And it, you know, As of today, it remains an issue uh, that Texas, Connecticut, and New York, and Alabama might treat a little differently. Okay, so per the question, though, it, it is the case that corporations
0: do have to report the earnings and the use of these earnings. Uh, to the IRS?
1: Well, yes. I mean, what, uh, and I'm not a tax lawyer, um, but correct. I mean, what they have to do is, uh, is they have to provide um, a, a, a variety of information to the IRS, in, uh, but in, and part of it includes you know, making sure that certain protections that were put in in 2000 with the 2006 law are being met.
0: Okay, well, we'll get to the 06, but let me ask uh, this question before we go to um, uh, that law. Uh, Subsequent to the Michael Moore film, uh, there was a fair amount of news reporting on this issue. For example, Good Morning America ran a five-minute segment that in some, really expressed outrage over this practice. However, even before the documentary was released, family members of employee decedents sued the deceased's employer over this. So on what
1: grounds were these family members suing, and what were the results of this yeah, the the I mean the results varied, but the grounds. I mean, I think are that's a wonderful question, but because so, it sort of ties us together. And the grounds, I think, were largely a, a, the idea of insurable interest, in essence, um, and that you know, or philosophically, who uh, one's life. Is, you know, is one something that if, if it's going to be insured, should at minimum be done with the consent of the person whose, you know, whose life is real, you know, is the, is the target of their policy. So corporations uh, were not, you know, were doing a couple of things and still are to some extent, depending on, you know, where. Uh, but corporations were taking out insurance policies. They were paying the premiums uh, and also receiving uh, the life insurance. Proceeds when the employee died, and there was not necessarily any notice to the employee that oh, this was going on. Uh, I mean, I worked for a large company in the 1990s. I have no idea if they had a, a corporate-owned, you know, if I was a, one of the janitor policy individuals or not. So it's you know, it's sort of a, it's a it's that's sort of a moral outrage in that you, my employer, who I hopefully have some trust in, are taking out a bet or a wager or insurance. On you know on my life, and that creates at least in theory certain incentives that I as an employee don 't like, plus I own my life, I should be able to be the one to decide who can take out a policy on it or not i mean that's and that 's more of a philosophical issue, but it 's also a legal issue you know there's a there 's a flip side to that argument if you want me to make it sure please sure which is you know um, and that is uh, this is all about. Corporate finance and tax scheme, you know, not even schemes, tax law. Our corporations were using the tax code as designed to use and taking advantage of the favorable tax treatment of life insurance, which has been around forever. You and I have it, but, you know, I have a term life policy. Uh, it's tax free if I die my beneficiaries get it. So corporations have been taking advantage, uh, utilizing the tax advantages that are explicit in the tax code, uh, to fund a variety of enterprises. It's not, it's not about really insurance. It's not about incentives. It's simply a corporate finance mechanism which the industry says with some, you know, I think some Justification and hey, we're using this money to fund employee benefit plans like health insurance or disability insurance, or you know, on from there, health insurance being the most important. And since, at least until the Affordable Care Act in the United States, as we know, uh, businesses employers do not have to did not have to provide health insurance so much of federal law was shaped to provide not requirements but incentives to do it you know we want you the employer to provide health benefits and all these other benefits to your employees we're not going to require it but we're going to provide incentives this you know so this was potentially one incentive to make it affordable and encourage insurance uh, employers to do it now we have the Affordable Care Act as you and your listeners know far better than most which we still have the financing issues, but now it's required to provide these benefits. Okay, but per per the question, it is the case that in
0: lawsuits that were won by plaintiffs, they demonstrated to the court that the employer did not have a quote-unquote insurable interest because the employee was not a key man to the company. Right. Right, okay. So let's go to um, the consent issue, and then I, I will get to the question about the reforms in '06. So. To what extent do employers buy these plans without the consent of the employee? The 06 provision that we'll get to did discuss uh, consent, but you said that since health insurance, or rather this case life insurance is at regulate at the state level, state laws vary. In fact, last I looked, it was a little more than half the states actually require uh, written consent
1: of the employee so what what is the consent status? so consent status now as I understand it and again this is a more tax issue is that the IRS um in you know well for the 2006 reforms the IRS really limited both in, in many ways the scope of who could be insured as well as then say and within this pool of people that you can you employer can take out insurance on uh you have to provide written notice um, and, and get their written consent. And in 2009, they issued a, a, a notice letter uh, which spells this out in more detail. So, you know, while states are all over the place on this, uh, the, you know, the IRS has at least, you know, if for companies that want to enjoy the, the tax benefits that are still available, mm-hmm. they have to comply with these requirements.
0: Right. So, this is the 2006 Pension Protection right. Act that the IRS, via the notice you just mentioned, uh, clarified the provisions thereof in 2009. Uh, so there are these best practices that you have to abide by if you want to still exploit the tax benefit or tax treatment. Uh, generally, though, and correct me if I'm wrong here, um, the reform does not exclude purchasing uh, these policies. It does, however, prohibit corporations from buying them such that they, without following
1: the best practices,
0: cannot claim the tax advantage.
1: Correct. Right. Right. So you you sort of have a you know so you have the federal government saying uh, if you want these tax advantages under federal law, you have to do X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z is you know, what we talked about briefly, you know as of 2006. Mm-hmm. You know, consent written, you know, notice and consent, and only a certain select group of employees. Um, you know, it, the federal government doesn't say you can't buy insurance correct. on those others. Then that becomes a matter of state. So if you know if under because the idea of insurable interest is going to vary a bit by state, you know that's one of the features of United States law is that uh, the state of Connecticut might have very different requirements on insurable interest and what you can and can't do than the state, you know, than the District of Columbia or the state of Washington. Okay,
0: let let me get to the question. I I think that's really most directly related to um, health policy, and that is in I in the website introduction. I noted that these policies can provide a disincentive to ensure worker safety and provide adequate health care insurance since, in effect, as you suggested, the employer or possibly the past employer has a vested interest uh, in the current or former employee's death or a vested interest in the employee, former employee dying quickly so as not to consume substantial health care. Disabilities costs. Right. And if you read uh, the uh, GAO's 2004 report, which I mentioned, I found it interestingly, it makes no mention whatsoever of this, what some would term a perverse uh, incentive. So, what, in your view, what if anything has been done uh, to address this concern? And maybe more pointedly, I'll ask you, as an insurance lawyer, if a client were to come to you and say, please give us your advice. Uh, as it relates to this potential conflict, what what would you say?
1: That good question, and that that's a classic, you know, a classic insurance concern, you know, whether, and that is, if we get insurance for our actions, are we going to be less careful? in our day-to-day operations. So, you know, we have auto insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that mean we're going to drive less carefully because we know that the, you know, at least the economic consequences of an accident, you know, might be compensated for? Are we going to lock our doors because we know a car is stolen or the house is entered, we'll still get insurance for a doctor, a lawyer, or, a, you know, or a company that uh, can, you know, can benefit uh, from, uh, from this, or, uh, you know, from the fact that there's life insurance. If an employee dies, they're going to be less careful. Uh, and that that's a good question. That's thats a traditional concern about insurance. But there are answers to that, um, and particularly in this area. One is, you know, you, you make sure that the employer or that the policyholder, who's ever paying the premium, has some, you know, skin in the game. That's a, that can be a deductible. You know, we, if we get into a car accident, we might have a $500 deductible. That means, you know, we're going to have some economic cost as well. Uh, and so the cost... Of health insurance, for example, is going to depend in part on you know what's uh, on what the loss experience is over that particular pool. So there's an economic, assuming that the employer is providing money into it, and with the ACA they need to, uh, there's an economic incentive to keep you know employers healthy. But let's step back for a second. I think so. You know, corporate-owned life insurance, arguably, you know in theory, right, creates an incentive that if my employees die, I get the benefit. You know, I don't have to pay the premium. I get the life insurance benefit. But there's also a lot of uh, forces on the other side that would discourage an company from you know, from being lax in safety. Uh, think about OSHA work requirements, uh, you know, in terms of workplace safety. Uh, there can be fines, uh, fairly significant fines and adverse publicity. If an employee is injured at work or dies at work, there's workers' compensation benefits that have to be paid. Now, particularly for larger companies, while they may be insured, ultimately the company is paying the cost, either direct, indirectly or through higher premiums. Uh, and again, if it's just, you know, if it's a employee uh, dies outside of the workplace, there's still not only the, the loss of that person's intellectual capital, what that person knows and does, uh, but there's also you know, additional cost to the life insurance plan and things like that. So there are, you know, we hope, and I'm not cynical, we hope that companies provide safe workplaces and good health plans because that's what they want to do for the sake of their employees. But if we don't think that, maybe more important is that there are really there are a lot of economic incentives that, you know, make it that uh, for employers to provide a safe workplace and to care about their employee's health, you know, for an economic perspective, even if not, a, you know, just being good corporate citizens.
0: So you're saying, in some, there are sort of counterweights or uh, counterbalances to sort of what effect this might have.
1: I think that's a that's a great response to my long-winded answer. Absolutely, and I think those counterweights probably more than make up for on that particular concern. Okay. Yes. Okay.
0: Um,
1: so my final question is:
0: um, Where are we today, from your understanding? How uh, prevalent still are these policies? Do they still constitute a substantial percent of life insurance? or a meaningful percent of annual uh, corporate uh, revenue. And lastly, there was some discussion uh, several years ago um, that banks would actually uh, further this approach by insuring, say, credit card holders, and there was even some discussion within Fannie Mae uh, to consider insurance sharing the lives of mortgage holders. So, um, again, to what extent is this scheme or method still uh, popular?
1: Yeah I mean the market it seems to have really changed substantially since 2006 and and you mentioned it David when you mentioned you know key man insurance and uh which is goes back many decades. Key man insurance is the idea that there are certain employees, particularly in smaller companies, that if that employee dies, there's you know, the business contacts, the knowledge, the technology, technical skill, whatever it is, is really going to be a substantial loss, and therefore the insurance company or the employer has a real insurable interest in that person and therefore can take out a life insurance practice. So that, that's sort of the – no, that's, that existed way before. It exists now. And the 2006 changes in the tax law, you know, really don't, don't alter that other than make sure that, uh, define it better and lay out the requirements that, you know, you, you have to tell the person in writing your employee that you're going to insure them, how, roughly how much the face value or the maximum face value is, and the employer employee in writing has to consent. Um, what you what we've seen a lot less of now is is what you said, you know, what the term is what janitors insurance or dead peasants insurance. And that's where the tax advantages of insuring, you know, large numbers of employees, you know, maybe most of, much of your workforce like Walmart did and Winn-Dixie and other stores. That, that, much of that, my understanding is, has really disappeared because the tax advantages have been taken away. Uh, it's not illegal to do unless the state says it is. Uh, but the tax advantages of providing, you know, of corporate owned life insurance on Three-quarters of your employees, for example, doesn't really exist anymore. So what what the 2006 changes do is sort of, to some extent, bring Coley back to its original function, which is ensuring key people – uh, we should use people, I guess, even though Key Man still use Key People, which has some definition, you know, both by income uh, and percentage within the company. The IRS just doesn't use the term important. It, it, it spells it out a bit. Mm-hmm. So we have what we have now in 2006 is not the elimination, but the substantial reduction, major reduction of janitor's insurance and it's still, a, you know, well, I understand it it's a fairly, you know, important market, at least important to life insurance companies, certainly, important market in you know executive you know using this as a form of executive compensation and and protection for the company. So so the least
0: it would be appropriate to say the, the least that could be said is that this policy is is no longer growing unabated.
1: I, I think that's right. Certainly, certainly, what, what concerned people—I think rightfully so—the most, you know, the, the idea of people, you know, the rank and file, to use that term, employees, are being in—you know—the company basically betting on their lives, which is what the thought was. That it's not necessarily illegal, but there's no the advantages to doing so for the company. Much of them have disappeared. Um, so, what we really see is much more the focus on the you know highly you know corporate owned insurance on highly compensated people now having said that there, i guess every the you know, last couple of years at least the president obama 's administration has you know proposed to eliminate these taxes uh, these tax benefits even on that segment, and uh, life insurance associations have come out strongly in opposition not surprisingly, they make a lot of money on this. Um, in fact, I'm looking at the press release from 2012, which is identical to the press release in 2013 and probably years before in which these associations are you know, saying this is an important benefit and it, the tax benefits should be maintained. So the battle of maintaining these benefits for key employees continues. The issue of dead peasants, it could be resurrected, or dead peasant insurance, which is a pejor- obviously a pejorative term, but it's not really what's going on now. Okay.
0: Well, with that, Peter, we're at our time boundary, so uh, let me say thank you again. Very interesting subject and interesting discussion. Thank you.
1: Thank you for your time.